Look at the adjective. Play. Now is the franchise going to take the Viagra? Oh, going to put the butts in the seat. Hello there, wrestling fans, and welcome to episode number 77 of Because WCW, the podcast where the big boys play. My name is the Twisted Genius Dinaeus, and I am joined, as always, by my co-host, sports columnist, and zone journalist Liam Hap. Good evening to you, Liam. How are you doing? Doing great, Dean. I'm doing great. I have the house to myself until Friday. It doesn't get better than this, does it? Probably not. No, in my small, warped little world, I think this is the peak. I am going to thoroughly enjoy this by checking my notes now. Recording a podcast about WCW. Oh, shit. I mean, no, it's, it's all right. It's from the. It's from the. You know, we've got one from the decent, decent era. The, this is this is decades before Vince Russo touched it. Don't worry, we're safe. Fair enough. But then we do have Ole Anderson and his favourite voice distortion box thingy. So we're not quite out of the woods. But we know we know there's certain things on this show that we're really looking forward to watching. So yeah, it's going to be a 50-50 split, isn't it? Indeed, and it's not just you and me who have been watching this, because I'm very pleased to say we have got a special guest with us making his WCW, his, not his WCW debut, <laughs> his because WCW debut. 20 years that, too late, mate, sorry. Yeah, he's, he's, he's knocking on the door of one CNN centre with his gear in a bag, going, I'm ready, and I'm wondering why no one is answering the door. Um, no, I am very, very pleased to welcome a man who I have known for many, many years, a good friend of mine and as veteran of the British wrestling business. Uh, do we call you RJ Singh? Do we call you Ross? What do we call you? Oh, oh whatever you feel comfortable with at this well, point. Yeah, just we'll, what, what, we'll call what you feels Ross. good. Let's go well, with I'll, Ross. I've known you as Ross for many years, but British wrestling fans will know you as as RJ Singh. Um, thank you it. very much for joining us. Oh, no, absolute pleasure. Long time WCW fan, first time uh, uh, caller, I suppose, for this one. So, yeah. And uh, uh, for, for those of those, those of uh, the people listening who, who are, may not be familiar with uh, with your body of work, tell us a little bit about uh, your your British wrestling career. Oh, I've I've been around long enough that I probably should have been signed by someone. But I haven't, <laughs> um, <laughs> which it just shows I'm not very good. Um, yeah, no. Uh, oh gosh, I've been. I mean, I've, I've been on the British wrestling scene for. Uh, what was it 2001 about nearly 19 years actually i think coming up coming up to 19 years next month um so yeah i've, so I've kind of started out in 2001 um saw kind of all the peaks and troughs of british wrestling over the last 19 years of how we kind of started building things up in the early 2000s just to see it all sort of drop out by you know by 2010 and then obviously kind of from 2012 onwards having this resurgence so um I've been fortunate enough, I, you know, in, in, in the wrestling career, I've had to be able to work for kind of a lot of, a lot of the top companies in Britain um, back in 2014, just before taking a retirement, my, my first of many retirements. Um, uh, we've um, all done it. We've all done it. We've all, we've all had a retirement here and there, you know. Um, 
but yeah, I was like, I was lucky enough to be part of a British boot camp too for TNA, which was an amazing experience as well. So um, yeah, I took some time out, um, came back again in 2016, um, and just been yeah, been they haven't got rid of me yet. I'm still I'm still around, still around. <laughs> and and of course, outside of the wrestling ring, uh, you have worked in in education for many many years, and you're you're now a head head teacher. I, believe. I am. Yeah, I'm a head teacher. I've been I've been a head teacher about a year and a half now. Um, I've, you know, for as long as I've been a wrestler, I've been, I've been a primary school teacher, um, and I've kind of worked my way up from class teacher to sort of assistant head, deputy head, and then sort of took the plunge about a year and a half ago to be a, to be a head teacher. Um, and if anybody had told me that my first year of headship would end in, you know, school closure <laughs> and <laughs> the entire world being turned on its head and having to rethink educate within like a matter of days, having to entirely rethink the education system, I don't think I would have believed them. We but, put uh, you in charge of this school and it's yeah. closed down. What the hell have you just, done? Just uh, unbelievable. Just, you know, you could not make it up. You really couldn't. So. Now, the one thing I've, I've always wondered is because my, my other half is a, a primary school teacher as well. And she is not a wrestler, um, but she often will be sat, sat on the sofa at like one, two o'clock in the morning, still doing her work. And as a as a deputy head and then a head, I can only I can only think that your workload is is even greater than that of a, a regular teacher. Oh, but um how how on earth do you find the time to juggle the careers of wrestler and teacher? Uh, do you know what? I, I get asked this all the time and I don't know, especially since, <laughs> about, especially since like, you know, two years ago, I added dad into that as well because mm-hmm. my daughter was born. So like between being a dad, between being a wrestler and a head teacher, I'm not quite sure how I do it. Um, you know, and uh, to be fair, I do have to leave. I mean, especially I think the biggest difference of becoming a dad two years ago was like I leave work at work now. Um, I think it's one of the fortunate things of sort of not having to like mark books anymore and things like that, which, you know, is a great, is a great relief, but I do, you just have to leave it at work now because, um, I want to obviously come home and spend time with my daughter and not have to, have to think about work and stuff like that. So, um, but it's been a lot easier because I haven't been able to wrestle because of COVID. So that's <laughs> yes, been, there is that. Since March, it's been quite easy, actually. It's Every just work. Yeah. yeah, it's pretty much just work. So there we go. Nice. So, um, which uh, which pay per view have you chosen to review, and why? To, to this 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 week, Matthew. Uh, no, we're gonna go. We're gonna go with Halloween Havoc ninety. Um, very timely. Yeah. Very very good time. You know, we are we are days away from from Halloween. Um, I've always loved the Halloween Havoc Halloween Havoc concept in WCW because um, obviously they always tend to do something a little bit kooky and a little bit wacky and. Uh, Obviously, it's the early, you know, it's the it's the nineties. It's it's the beginning of the nineties, and uh, one thing was huge in in WCW around the nineties, uh, early nineties, especially is tag team wrestling as well. And we'll see quite a lot of tag team wrestling on this pay per view, um, which they had to have a big tag division in WCW because they had two tag titles, which is kind yes. of you know, and not not you know SmackDown and Raw tag titles. They had a US they had the US tag titles, and they had the the, the world tag titles. And their tag division was so deep. There was such mm. a depth of, of tag teams. Um, and so a lot of their pay-per-views were filled with with, with, with tag team matches as well. And this is kind of no exception um, in this pay-per-view as well. So 
Um, it, it's obviously, and obviously, you know, we are still within the Black Scorpion storyline, which we'll get onto and talk <laughs> <Yes>. about. <laughs> which was just, I've got an amazing note about my opinion on the the, the feature of the Black Scorpion in this pay per view. Um, but it's, it's interesting. There's, this this pay per view is definitely like Halloween Havoc '90 is a real mixture of some really great wrestling and some really daft shenanigans. So I think it kind of it perfectly got you know blended the two together. Well, yeah, it is. It is the combination of Halloween WCW. It's beautifully combined. I mean, I, I tell you what, I was going to talk about this later on in this podcast, but seeing as you've brought it up now, I think it's an ideal time to go for it. You know, people talk about the the, the depth of of the tag team roster in, in in AEW at the moment because obviously the tag team wrestling there is is a big big feature with the Young Bucks being involved. Um, and and this is a question for both both you and and Liam that. How how does the the AEW roster of today compare with the the era of WCW? Because yeah, was was the the early nineties a, a golden age for tag wrestling in in this promotion? I mean, you had like you, you said, you you got the two tag titles. I mean, just off the top of my head, you've got Doom, the Horsemen, the Steiners, the Nasty Boys, Freebirds, Midnight Express, Rock and Roll Express. You, you, further down, you got the Southern Boys, you got the Master Blasters starting. Like, there's so many tag teams here. Yeah, I think um, I definitely think you know it, it's still more revered back back in the 90s. Um, and you know, my my point about saying about the World Tag Titles and the US Tag Titles, the US Tag Titles, even though they were the secondary tag titles, they were still treated with such importance. Mm. So it was almost like you know. They, they often talk about how prestigious it was to hold those US tag titles almost in the same vein of holding the world titles. They were just as important. And I think that was that was a major factor in it as well. And, um, you know, you were you were you were still in the era where tag teams were dressed the same and that, you know, they had the same look. Um, yeah. And they were very united in their concept of a tag team. Whereas, you know, even nowadays in AEW is still a lot of his two guys were thrown together. Um and I don't know, personally, I, I like the commonality of like a tag team who dresses the same. Mm, um, yes. Whereas, you know, you take like a modern day tag team like Best Friends. You've got Chuck Taylor and um, and Trent. And even though they're a tag team, they've been established as a tag team in AEW, but they, they still dress completely differently. I think they share the same colours and that's it. Yeah. Whereas, you know, you look back at this era and people were clearly tag teams, like very, very clearly tag teams. Mm. Liam? Yeah, I'll tell you what, thinking about the... AEW tag division depth and uh, there are quite a host of teams I'm thinking of like I mean you you just mentioned uh, best friends there's one example you think teams like private party and uh, Uno and Grayson they're, they're teams that would actually really benefit from a a TNT tag team championship, which I'm presuming is the way you go, given that the single secondary title has the, the TNT television championship branding. Um, But yeah, going back to that point on the United States titles, there were, there seemed to be peaks and trails on the, on the whole situation where there were times where they'd be held by thrown together duos, yeah, you know, especially later on, they they kind of went out with a bit of a whimper. But for the most part, and during the peak years, we're talking guys like the Midnight Express, and the, they're being held at this pay per view by the Steiner brothers. And mm. these are the sort of guys who are holding. And yet, you still had big marquee tag teams holding the world tag titles. So it weren't as if 
it was like, what are they doing with these belts because the world titles are right there? No, no, no. Both, both uh, championships were being held in a very high situation in big programs normally. So, yeah, I, I think AEW could very easily run a, a secondary uh, tag team championship situation. They've got, they've got the depth and there's there's teams who'd probably benefit from it because if you think about it, the very first episode of Dynamite, private party beating the young bucks and it kind Ooh. of like really stayed it was a great thing to do and it really established them and they've kind of just been there since you know generally they will their work's pretty good they're still learning they're still young but they could really do with something like a, a championship or something to to get them going because they've not even really have much of a huge feud either yeah and also you think about with you know you mentioned the u.s title you know on on this pay-per-view we've got Lex Luger is going into the paper as the defending champion. And at this era, he is like the perennial US champ, who was traditionally always the number one contender to the world title in the rankings. And it was almost like with Lex Luger, he was being groomed for that world champion spot. And, you know, six months or so after this pay-per-view, he does become the world champion, albeit because Ric Flair's bugging off to the WWF. <laughs> but... and. And so with yeah with this yeah you got the Steiners are the US champs and it's I mean I think they had been the world champs by this point already but by being the US tag champs it, it puts them in line to to go for those world title shots as well so yeah it gives more I, th- I think it gives more depth to the to the tag division definitely if you've got enough quality teams I mean you're uh, you're a man who is no stranger to tag team wrestling as well Ross aren't you Yeah I mean you know I've I've done quite a lot of tag wrestling in my time um and in various different promotions with 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 a couple of different tag partners so i mean i'm a, I'm a real lover of tag wrestling um and i think when it's done well when it's done right and um which i which i really like about ftr because a kind of ftr's gimmick is all about follow the follow the rules um follow the tag rules and make sure you know mm. and i think when and i think obviously a huge criticism of AEW when it first you know launched was people not following the tag rules and i mean and that that's that's kind of symptomatic of tag wrestling in the modern era anyway, that people aren't following those rules. But actually what, what a lot of wrestlers I think miss is if you don't follow the tag rules, it's actually less interesting because if you follow the tag rules, there's so much interesting stuff you can do. Um, and lot, you know, really, really good stories you can tell by, by following the tag rules. So I'm glad to see like, you know, FTR have like the, they have the rule, don't they? In all their matches, the tag rope has to be used and things like that. So yeah, um, it, it's great to see that kind of stuff coming back. Beautiful. Also, you said that you're um, you're coming up to one next month is your your 19th anniversary in wrestling. Now, am I right in thinking, therefore, because I've got a feeling that your first ever match was in the FWA in Harrow, and that would yeah. have been where I was making my FWA debut, and I was sitting in the front row of the crowd for the first couple of matches before I. I, I'll say hop to the rail. I mean, I kind of clambered over it and nearly fell on my face, but let's call it hop to the rail to, to do an angle with Justin Richards. That's and it, that yeah. would have been the opening match against Hayde Vanson, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah. It was, um, it was FWA high school hell. It was the, yeah. Uh, yeah. It was exactly. Yeah. That was exactly it. It was uh, me and, um, yeah, me and Hayde both, um, kind of having our debut matches at the time where, uh, it was, it was, it was a clear, experiment to show everyone what a superstar hate was and i was just there i, I was there to make up the numbers so uh, but yeah no that was it yeah that was the very show and it's really funny because i'm really just it's still so clear in my head 
that whole show and you know the match and stuff like that and because uh, we did the whole there was the whole new school versus old school thing at the yes. end um and they told us to get involved in that as well and come out at the end and like i, I can't remember if it was old herman or drew no, it's Drew. I think Drew McDonald just launched a chair at me. <laughs> one of those plastic school chairs. He just launched one of those at me and like um, gave me a big grin afterwards. So it was a yeah, it was a great experience. I mean, for my first ever show, it was a great experience. Like yeah. really, one I look back on with you know very fond memories. That was a cracking show. I remember it well. Yeah, yeah. I remember. I remember having been in you know other promotions. He presented things differently. Just to to be in a show where you had organisation backstage and you had things like a a curtain and a guardrail and it, it it was like being in a in a different age. It was fantastic. Great memories. Listen up, slap nuts. That's right. This is Jeff Jarrett, the chosen one, and you're listening to because WCW. Now choke on that. Okay, well, let's um, let's crack on them with WCW Halloween Havoc '90. Um, it is October the 27th, 1990. We're in the famous wrestling city of Chicago, Illinois, for what is the second annual Halloween Havoc pay-per-view. Poor Sting has got to carry Sid Vicious to a watchable main event for the world title. Poor Lex Luger has got to avoid getting his head knocked off his shoulders by Stan Hansen as he defends his U.S. title, and Doom face the horsemen of Ric Flair and Arn Anderson in the rare heels v heels match for the tag belts. Uh, our commentators are Jim Ross and Paulie Dangerously, and Tony Schiavone, who starts the evening off dressed as the Phantom of the Opera, is handling the interviews. Now, before we go on to the, this uh, event itself, must make it clear here that some, for some reason, this show is only listed as being two hours long on the WWE Network, and for some reason they've cut an hour out of the show in several matches, including Kevin Nash's pay-per-view debut as one half of the Master Blasters tag team. Um, on the plus side, we've also missed a 12-minute match between Terry Taylor and Bill Irwin, so it's not all bad. But I'm kind of guessing this must be like the VHS edit or something like that. Not yeah, sure. I, yeah, I believe I believe so. Like I was, I was trying to read up on why they did it, but I think this was quite common um, at the time. As I don't know whether it was to punish you for not watching the paper, like <laughs> some sort of some sort of punishment. It's like no, you didn't watch the paper, you don't get to see all the matches. But um, it's definitely the. Um, yeah, it's definitely the VHS version because I did start when when I went back to watch this. I started watching some of the VHS version, um, and then I switched over to the network just for the better quality to to, to watch it in better quality. And it is it, it runs exactly the same. So yeah. I think they they definitely picked up the VHS copy and um, just unfortunately on the network just dubbed over some of the songs with terrible music. <laughs> yes, um, yeah, because this as uh, we've mentioned on previous episodes, this was the the era that they um, they released about four or five WCW pay-per-views on VHS here in the UK as well as in the US. Um, so there's this. It's all from the 1991 sort of time. So it was, um, I think there was um, Capital Combat 90 with the, the wonderful debut of Robocop and there was Starcade 90 with the tag tournament that we've, we've covered previously with um, Carl Stewart. Um, and I think it went up to like the Great American Bash 91, which we haven't covered yet because no one wants to cover it because it's bloody awful. Um, <laughs> which was where um, Lex Luger won the world title, vacant world title from uh, Barry Windsor in a main event where the entire crowd just chanted, we want flair for the whole match. But, oh, we'll uh, get there. Yeah, we'll get there to that one. And that will be an absolute <laughs> yeah. glorious uh, situation. But and I'm pretty sure another one of those VHSs 
was Havoc 91. And I say this because when I first watched Havoc 90, it was when a friend of mine at school lent me Havoc 90 and Havoc 91. And the interesting distinction is, is that, yeah, that what what we are reviewing for this episode is indeed the the, the cup matches, the VH schedule. Now, I remember the trimmed down version of the 91 Havoc, and yet on when we watched it on the network for that episode a couple of Halloweens ago, it was uh, the full one. So yeah. I don't know why... Because that was it, a Chamber of Horrors, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, this is one of the rare occasions that WWE have had access to the, um, the, to the full version. They've chosen not to put it up. So it's baffling. Oh, well. Um, so, well, we start our pay-per-view with um, Tony Giovanni interviewing Tommy Rich and Ricky Morton. Ricky Morton wishes his injured fellow Rock and Roll Express member Robert Gibson all the best as someone in the truck accidentally turns the lights out. <laughs> um, so our main, our main event, our first match even, is... Um, and this was the first match of the actual pay-per-view because there were a couple of dark matches, um, but we are starting with a proper opener, which was um, the makeshift tag team of Tommy Rich and Ricky Morton against the Midnight Express of Bobby Eaton and Stan Lane with Jim Cornette. And um, going back to what you mentioned already, Ross curses to the network for removing Ugh. the uh, Midnight Express famous chase theme tune. Um, ring announcer Gary Michael Capetta, who still hasn't got back to us about appearing on this podcast. Come on, Gary. Um, he's wearing a tremendous looking bright pink tuxedo jacket. It's a, it looks like he's attending Bret Hart's wedding or something. Um, and this would prove to be Jim Cornette and Stan Lane's final WCW appearance um, as Cornette allegedly quit the promotion with the phrase, you can tell Jim Hurd to shove his fucking pumpkin up his ass. Uh, we never did get that uh, substantiated by the man himself. Never mind. Um, both the commentators here and Morton in the pre-match interview talk about how the Freebirds injured Gibson. So, of course, in true WCW logic, they're not facing the Freebirds here. Um, so we start with Morton in there following the Midnight's free rock and roll routine that they can both do in their sleep. Morton's in charge to the blind tag, gives the Midnight's the advantage, and they work over Morton, and Morton does what he does best as a babyface, which is sell, sell, sell. Um, Cornette is also being masterful as the heel manager, distracting the referee to allow the Midnights to double team Morton. Lane slams Morton on the ramp. Eaton comes off with a, a knee drop off the top rope. Morton then avoids Eaton charging in on him on the outside. Eaton smacks into the ring post. Morton lands a head scissors takedown, and Eaton almost as he's landing calls for Cornette, who boots Morton in the ribs to stop him gaining back any uh, any kind of momentum. Back in the ring, Eaton lands a picture-perfect top rope leg drop. Ten minutes in, Morton still hasn't been able to tag out to Rich. They go for a rocket launcher, but Morton gets his knees up to block it, and Rich finally gets tagged in. Rich goes up to the top rope, but Cornette nails him with his tennis racket, and then the southern boys of Tracy Smothers and Steve Armstrong come out, both dressed as Jim Cornette. Um, it's comedy versions of Jim Cornette, I should say. Um, Mort, uh, Armstrong smacks Cornette with a tennis racket, and with everyone distracted, Rich grabs Cornette's own racket, nails Stan Lane with it, and gets the pinfall victory in tw- uh, an official time of 20 minutes and 49 seconds. Ross, your thoughts on this opener? 
Um, first of all, I was really freaked out because Ricky Ricky Morton had his hair like slicked back into a ponytail. Mm. And I was like, where is the spiky mullet? Like, I couldn't quite process that was Ricky Morton without seeing the spiky mullet. Um, but yeah, no, I, the other reason I was, I was quite disappointed. I, 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 this was the sort of the match I started watching on the VHS version, and it's the kind of Giorgio Moroder um, version of the chase theme music, uh, music, you know, the Midnight Express one. It's not their WCW Jimmy Hart version, which uh, is, is just amazing. It's so 80s, it's brilliant. Um, there is some amazing tag moves in here. There's like, there's one moment they do um, the Midnight send off ricky morton and i think bobby Eaton gives him a back body drop and and stan lane catches him in a power slam and it's just it just looks awesome and i think that's what what a lot you see in this match is is just the fantastic tag work of the midnight yeah. express they're just they're so slick so good um you mentioned it i mean i made it in, you know I, I made a note of it bobby Eaton's top rope leg drop is beyond phenomenal it it's is amazing you know, isn't it you know it just looks so good it's you know and I, I can't say this enough and i think if anyone you know hasn't watched this go and watch this match just for that top rope leg drop if anything else because it's so slick and it's so it just looks like such a killer finish when he does it and he was i don't think i don't think anyone's ever done it better than bobby and no. that, that that top rope leg drop um, but you know i watched that move and i kind of think how have you not like compressed your spine <laughs> to dust by now he just, yeah, he just, he just does, you know, effortless, just does it effortless. So it's, it's really good. I mean, one thing I found quite interesting for about a 20 minute match, I think Tommy Rich does about three minutes of work in this. <laughs> yeah, all, he's got it easy. I don't know what, I don't know what the deal was there, but it's, it's all Ricky Morton. Like he just literally works the entire match, gets the hot tag. Tommy Rich comes in and then they're, they're at the finish about three minutes later and like Tommy Rich has done very little yeah. and then gets the victory. Um, um, and quite funny, I, I didn't, I don't know if this was on the network version, but there is a slight bungle um, at the end of this when they do the replay of the finish where, um, where Morton and Rich win, they play the midnight's music over the replay, even though they lost. So, right. it's, a, it's a fantastic little bungle there. So, but um, no, I, I mean, it's really enjoyable, you know, like you said, you know, Morton had worked with the Midnights so often anyway, it was just, it was just easy for them to go through and, and still, but yet still look really amazing. Um, sweet Stan, it just does some amazing dances throughout this match, just like to get his heat with the crowd. He just does little like hip wiggles and stuff like that. And he just, he looks like he's having the best time to be honest. And uh, yeah, so it was, it was really enjoyable. I really enjoyed this as an opener. Um, probably a little bit long for me like and and Ricky Morton getting beaten up for a long time um but yeah i think i think it was a really enjoyable way to start the pay-per-view yeah and having said that i do have a feeling from just just from some of the time calls compared with like some of the the official times of matches that are listed i've got a feeling that actually some of these matches have been edited down a bit as well so we're not even getting necessarily getting the full the full matches but um let, let me ask you something else as a as a wrestler yourself when when you're working with someone who uh, you've worked with so many times before, and I you know I know there'll be there'll be people that you've worked with an awful lot in your career, where you can pretty much you know do your match in your sleep, are you then tempted to try and add new things because it's someone you're very familiar with, or are you do you tend to think we'll keep it to the you know safe to what we know works and what will entertain the crowd? Um, I think it, it really depends on where we are, like what promotion, what where in the country we are. Like, have we, you know, have we been here before? Has this crowd seen us before? You right. Know, uh, well, you know, so 
um, I'm thinking someone like Sticks, like who, you know, I we've we've had hundreds of matches together, mm-hmm. um, and there are some times where we would do in different, just the same match in about four or five different promotions because no one had seen that seen us do that match before, so we could kind of we could do it like that. Whereas other times, if we'd come back to a particular promotion again, or you know, we we felt that we we'd sometimes and we we would always perhaps throw some stuff in and then try change it up. But um, for anyone who's ever worked with Sticks, um, he 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 hates sitting on his laurels. Like he will never just settle, and so he always would want to do new stuff as well. And that that was often the case that we'd often try throw something different in. Cool, thank you, um, Liam. Your thoughts on this one? Are the opener and all that? Yeah, well, I want I want to address two things. So, for, before I get into art of the open and all that, firstly, when you mentioned about uh, Cornet and the Midnight's leaving, um, it was hard. I, I was familiar with something along those lines, like you were, and I've had a quick little search just now to try and hammer down exactly what happened and a few things are including so, so some people posted a video it looked like of of what he had said in an interview on youtube but that has been deleted uh but it was mentioned in a in a, in a scott keith review of this show where apparently it was something to do where the feud with the southern boys was was going obviously they they made the run towards the end dressed as cornet uh, I don't know if it would have happened on this show or just straight after about bumps into pumpkins and stuff. Yeah. And um, yeah, all he really says in, in explicit detail, Scott Keefe, is that suffice it to say, we got off easy with the corner impersonations. So it looks like that was a bit of a compromise from it. But nonetheless, he, he packed up and left anyway. Um, yeah, the, the version I'd heard, I think, was that, they, that he wanted to like... St- get a pumpkin stuck on his head or something like that yeah which which you you wouldn't think would be a line in the sand for jim connect given that he seems to have a fetish for having his head stuck in birthday cakes and things like that (laughs) but i think one thing he has established in his rather transparent attempts to fake outrage and drive traffic to his podcast ventures is that his lines in the sand, his principles are are very fluctuating and very wavering and very convenient and very selective. So, yeah. And speaking on that topic, yes, as, as an opening match, yes, this is some great tag action, some fun stuff. But there was one little niggle about it that really... I, I, especially as we've actually addressed AEW and some of their weaknesses already on this on this episode. One of the most interesting things I've, I found out about this match, and you'll see other examples of it as we progress through, but the, bit, the, the big one being the rocket launcher on the walkway that happens like midway through the match yeah. and basically just leads to... Morton selling as he normally would with wear down holds where he'd actually get up and walk into the next spot and things like that. So the, the actual, you know, finishing move out on the hard floor as he's kind of just washed away in, in favor of all of the neck breakers and, and regular moves you use to keep someone away from the hot tag. Uh, and yeah, if you think about it, how much heat does, all elite wrestling get from Cornet and his followers for being what is it um spot fests where people uh-huh. don't sell the big moves 
absolutely incredible. And we've got we've got a, sh a show here and a match here where that very same principle is there. And Jim Cornette himself is in the fucking arena for it. Uh, <laughs> and it just goes. And as I said at the start, I enjoyed this match. It goes to show that it is a it is a thing that pops up on every wrestling product throughout time. It's one of the things Dave Meltzer has tried to hammer home is that things being branded a spot fest and yes, things being probably able to be labelled a spot fest and things having not enough selling, uh, it, it's it's as old as wrestling itself. Uh, yeah. And it's amazing people want to get whipped up into this thing. It's 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 about as ridiculous as the, the various seasonal outrages. You'll see the tabloids whip people up in this country. Uh, it's, yeah. it's right up there with it. And they fall for it every time. But if you look here, you watch one of these old shows, and I'm sure there's other ones, lo and behold, they have the same pitfalls that your typical episode of Dynamite does. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, this is, well... This will be exactly 30 years tomorrow from the date we're recording this. So, um, so yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I personally I absolutely loved this. To me, it was a perfect example of something I'm very familiar with, a heel tag team working in tandem with the manager and a babyface who knows how to, to sell and work with them exactly. Um, yeah, brilliant. And thing, things like it was the blind tags, it was the timing of Cornette's interference. And, of course, you got the heels getting their comeuppance at the end. So, yeah, brilliant stuff. Great opener. Okay, so... Um, here come the first lot of shenanigans. Sting comes out for an interview with Tony Schiavone to a huge pop from the crowd. He comes out without his title belt for some reason. He says very little, um, mentioning uh, the Black Scorpion. I'm sure it's not the last time we'll hear about him. And Sid Vicious. And then, just as he's finishing his interview, the Black Scorpion appears with uh, Ole Anderson's Shockmaster voice blaring out over the PA and performs a, a magic trick which involves grabbing a planted female crew member, um, disappearing into a cage which just happens to have been set up at the side of the uh, arena, um, and then basically running very quickly between A and B and reappearing somewhere, and Jim Ross says he's never seen anything like it before in his life. Um, did this make anyone... Uh, afraid or in awe of the black scorpion? <laughs> well, I, I, my 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 only note on this segment was world's worst magic show. <laughs> it, just, it, just, it just came across as this really cheap, like the kind of thing you would have had at your tenth birthday, <laughs> like if that. Um, it was, it was pretty dreadful, I've got to be honest. If, if um, my parents pulled that crap off at my 10th birthday, I would have disowned them, I think. <laughs> um, what, it, what it made me afraid of and in awe of was the security team who basically stood there out of view and watched the Black Scorpion grab a fan and essentially kidnap her or live on pay-per-view. And then when Sting notices what's going on and wants to go over there, suddenly they swamp him and go, no, 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 don't go over there. Let this kidnapping happen. And obviously the whole thing was a subterfuge to suitably delay Sting's arrival over there until they know that they've obviously they've left the curtain. But uh, yeah, it just makes it even more ridiculous and hokey. And did you also notice when we had that already catastrophic pre-match interview with Morton and Rich... Uh, where the lights flickered on and off. Did you also notice they had the whole, what is clearly a setup for a magic trick behind them? I, I had and, no, and, and no one thought to themselves, why is there a 
disappearing act magic trick here. An this enormous 12-foot cage at the side Who's going to use this? Is it those pesky free birds again? Oh, what man. the fuck? I, I, also, I also like to think that, you know, had... Had I been, uh, had I put this idea to someone when I was booking things like RQW, that someone like Ross would have come over to me and gone, Dean, we think you need to have to take some time off and, and, and maybe smack and smack <laughs> you, hopefully. Stop he would come over and it, smack yeah. you. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus. Just terrible. Yeah, it was, it was, it was, uh, yeah. It, <laughs> so you had this great opening match and then this, this promo was just, <laughs> just followed it. It was just awful. But just awful this but, Ross um, is the beauty of WCW it is it is what, what also made me laugh just around this point as well is that uh, and by the way what was Jim what was Jim Ross dressed as was it Al Capone like what was his costume I thought Jim Ross was just dressed as Jim Ross because but... <laughs> <laughs> he, he appeared to be like so Paulie you know Paulie started off as Dracula but literally as as they finished that opening promo Paulie was chucking his costume off he was like yeah. getting rid of it and Jim Ross, by this point, had taken his hat off, so he's no longer. But Paul Schiavone stayed in his phantom gear the entire pay-per-view. I think he just does the entire pay-per-view in his costume as well. As he should do. As he should, yeah. The greatest costume in the history of this great sport, <laughs> don't you know? Okay, match number two. It is the Renegade Warriors versus the Fabulous Freebirds with Little Richard Marley, a.k.a. Rocky King. And the, the Renegade Warriors, they, they had a brief stopover in WCW. They are Chris and Mark Youngblood, genuine brothers, um, Native Americans. And they they kind of... My, I noticed, I, I said that they look like someone's put the Rockers and Wahoo McDaniel into a blender and poured out the contents. Um Little Richard Marley is wearing Robert Gibson's old tights because the Freebirds injured Robert Gibson in the storyline. Um, and this match came about after the Freebirds assorted Alan Iron Eagle, another Native American competitor, and someone I remember quite vividly from the glory days of WCW Worldwide airing at three o'clock in the morning on a Saturday night, as we have talked about many a time on this podcast. Um, Michael Hayes has pink hair and face paint on and is wearing sequin dungarees. And uh, clearly it wasn't just David Bowie who had a cocaine phase in their career. Um, the Renegades are in control till Garvin kicks out of a roll-up attempt and uh, Chris Youngblood runs straight into a Hayes left hand. The Freebirds then distract Mark and the referee and cheat behind the ref's back. But despite being the heels, the crowd are solidly behind the Freebirds, chanting DDT for Hayes' big move. Um, a few minutes later, Hayes teases the move and the entire crowd erupt. Um, Hayes goes up top. He's interrupted by Chris, or intercepted, I should say, by Chris, who slams him off the top, tags his brother in. The end comes soon afterwards when little Richard Marley gets into the ring with the ref distracted. Garvin gets caught in a rolling prawn hold, but Hayes runs in. DDT's young blood out of the hold. Garvin then covers him for the three count in 17 minutes, 28 seconds. I found this a bit of a sort of a, a nondescript match where not an awful lot happened. What, what did you make of this one, Ross? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I would say exactly the same. And I think it was it was mainly because the young bloods really, you know, they, they really weren't over at all. They just weren't over with the crowd compared to the Freebirds. And despite being the hills, um, the Freebirds were just were just totally over the crowd. I mean, the, that that was the main point I was going to make. You know, when watching it's just the DDT was so over, like ridiculously mm. over, like you know. What what you you know I don't know what the most over wrestling move at the moment is it still the RKO maybe who knows um, but yeah it was like it was a ridiculous amount of uh, of being over and what was really great is that when when Hayes teases it 
and the crowd do that massive pop straight away. And this is why JR is such an amazing commentator. He jumps on it straight away and he puts over what a dangerous and deadly finish the, um, the, uh, the DDT is. Um, and he goes on about how both Hayes and Garvin are both like, you know, really are masters of the DDT. They're both really proficient in it. Um, and actually not, not the last DDT we'll see of the night that gets a big pop as well. Yes. Um, so yeah, it was you know it was it was just all about the freebirds. Um, but yeah, not not a lot happened. I mean, my I gotta say, my main note is something Heyman says, um, and I've had to write it down because it was so amazing. So so Heyman is is I think like Jim Ross is saying how despicable the freebirds have been lately because they're just they're trying to put other guys on the shelf. Yeah, so obviously obviously what they've done to Gibson. Um, and Heyman is tra- is basically trying to put the Freebirds over as like, yeah, they're trying to, you know, they're trying to get rid of the competition. They're, you know, they're taking guys out, <laughs> and, he, and he he basically puts over that um, that they 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 the Freebirds will basically want to end the careers of the uh, of the Renegade Warriors, and in doing so, he uses the line. He's going to stop them from feeding their little Indian family. <laughs> better send <laughs> better better send them back to basket weaving school. Oh, it did. <laughs> This I didn't just... catch that last bit. It's a uh, better send them back to basket weaving school. No, no, on the on the um, on, the... On, on the on the actual um, pay per view. I remember yeah. him hearing. I remember him hearing the yeah the Indian family bit. Unless it's been yeah. edited out of the network. But, oh my god! Just, it's incredible. Just remember, it's a different time. It was a it different is... time. <laughs> it is a different time. I don't know how he got away with it. It's it's such oh, a man. Like, it literally made me sit up straight when I heard him say it, and it's like it's so funny. But um, yeah, like I said, I think I think what this match probably suffered for a little bit as well is that you kind of see you do tend to see a lot of similar structures um, throughout all three tag matches that are on this, this, this pay-per-view and well, the ones that we could see anyway. Um, and uh, a couple of things happen that you saw. in so um, in the opening tag match, when Ricky Morton goes to tag out, he does it by doing a, a, a shoulder roll, then yeah. into the tag. Exactly the same thing happens in this match. Um, one of the Renegade Warriors does exactly the same thing. He rolls through and then hits the hot tag and things like that. Um, there was also some very similar spots where um, there was like cheating, like the the, the heels would um, distract the ref and get a cheat, get a double team in behind the ref's back. And you, again, you see that in all in all the tag matches, which again it's it's probably a bit trickier when you have that many tag matches on the pay per view, um, and they're all structured in a fairly similar way. So yeah, it suffered a little bit from that. So. Um, and I think obviously there was just, there was no kind of, I don't, I mean, I doubt there was like a story going into this between the two teams. Um, therefore it kind of just felt more like a bit of a showcase for the free birds to just, just get over doing their thing. Yeah. Liam. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think what one of the renegade warriors associates was one, of the guys attacked by the free birds or something, wasn't it? it was yeah. Alan some, Iron Eagle. Yeah. yeah. So, so, so yeah, as you, as you said, so it was a bit of a, tenuous whimsical thing but there you go but yeah, but yeah I, I i completely agree with the whole the the, the juxtaposition of um ha- having the commentators talking about how despicable the free birds are where meanwhile they are just very clearly milking for the baby face reaction and getting it it was a very strange thing almost as strange as you mentioned the time cuts i don't think any uh any match that was shown on the the VHS edit was as affected as this one because there was a call for 15 minutes elapsed after about three minutes. <laughs> so they really butchered the start of the match, it seemed. 
Uh, but I think they do this a way of doing it. There is a way of doing it as as a as an MC that I've been many times where you where you do shave time off. You know, you like you you call five minutes at four minutes, you call ten minutes at eight minutes, and you shave things off. But but not by that much. Yeah, there's been some butchering going on there, hasn't there? Yeah, if someone tried to get if Capetta tried to get away with that live, that would have caused a reaction. <laughs> Everyone would have been you just seen the entire crowd looking at their wristwatches like what what the fuck. And and the American version of Gadge going crazy. Yeah, but yeah, um, do you know what? The, of all the matches to butcher on the VHS edit, um, they could have easily just taken this out altogether along with some of the other ones. Next. Um, okay, so we then go to Shivani for an interview with the horsemen of Flair, Anson and Vicious. Barry Windham is conspicuous by his absence. Um, and my God, after some quick promos from Anson and Flair, you really do notice Sid's lack of promo <laughs> ability, don't you? Yeah. I just made one note, which was Sid shouts. <laughs> yeah, you got you got arm with his you know measured, careful promo and saying about how unusual it is for heel v heel, but you know this is where we are and they want to be the world champs. Then you get Flair just doing a Flair promo and jeering the crowd up, and then yes, yeah, Sid just shouts as you say. See, no, I liked I liked the contrasts, and considering the fact that Sid basically uttered his I think it came down to a a string of three different uh, phrases and he managed to get through them without stumbling on his words which he does very often as as you may know if you if you watch things like Botchamania and that oh yes Um, and yeah he's very very big man shouty but yeah that's exactly what he is and if you consider the fact that you know Flair has always over projected anyway but obviously he's managed to hone it into a style which people recognise as his and give him a pass for it. Uh, I didn't mind it. It was short and sweet and everyone got in their notes. So that's kind of what these old school style promos are supposed to be. But yeah, it's funny watching Sid shout and shout and shout. But for me, that was that was as much of a Sid promo as Flair's was a Flair promo. As long as he doesn't fuck up. But, but you, what, you enjoy the contrast. Yeah. Of, of that, I mean, surely that's like, that's like one day we go out for a magnificent steak meal, and the next day I take you to a chippy and go, I've got them to deep fry and batter this turd for you. It's it's not going to compare, surely. Well, no, not a turd, but it's funny you mentioned going to a chippy. Um, that's exactly when you enjoy some some chips from a chip shop. You've, you've eaten your your vegetables through the week and had some fine dining. You uh have a nice fish and chips Friday. It tastes quite nice. You add that every day, uh, it clogs up your fucking arteries and makes you feel heavy. Uh, no, Sid, Sid's style was Sid's style. Uh, if if he if he messes up his words and when he says things like "have half the brain that you do," then, <laughs> yes. then fair enough, he deserves it. Or can we do that again? We're we're live, pal. We're live, pal. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, fair enough. But he's 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 been given three lines, very simple work because they know he can't handle more than this. And he shouted his lines and he's told us he rules the world, which I've always been a sucker for. He's the man that rules the world. He's the man that rules the world. Yeah, see, see, I always thought his promos in WWF are far better, but I'm assuming that's because there was a lot more input into yes. his promos in Did WWF. Did he actually like, change like, anything? Other than yeah, he, whispered, I, he whispered the last yeah. line, which I liked. Yeah, I think that was the big difference. So that's, that's exactly what I was thinking. Because I, I, when I, I think that's what made me sort of think, oh, God, he's shouting a lot. It's because... I remember him as Psycho Sid, but was it 95, 96, whatever, when he was, when he was in WWF yeah. then? 
um, his sort of second return, his second run in the company. And I just remember him being a lot quieter. Like he didn't shout that much all the time. And um, I, I mean, I, and I think when you compare any time he did a promo in WCW, obviously in these early days, he was yelling his head off. And in his later sort of late 90s runs, he was just bumbling through them. Um, but with WWF, they always seemed a lot slicker. But I think just obviously because the production itself was was a lot slicker. Yeah, well, I had a theory about the way the way to finish with some whispering final lines, actually. See, my theory was, and they'd always go close up to him, so you'd only see his head and his shoulders while he's doing his promos most of the time. My theory was that he is like really getting into it and shouting and shouting and really aggressive because uh, away from the... You know, what you can't see behind from behind the camera lens is that someone is giving him some sort of pleasure. And he's going furious and furious and furious. And then right towards it, he can't last the whole promo. Right towards the end of the promo, he finishes his load, which is when he starts whispering. Whispering. <laughs> try, next time you watch a Sid promo, try and get that out of your head. Thanks. Jeez. Thanks for that. Uh, right, we'll move on <laughs> to... Um... The third match on the broadcast. And now this this is the match I've been looking forward to seeing after a 30-year absence. Um, it is the US type tag team title. Uh, the Nasty Boys challenging the Steinable brothers. Um, the Nasty Boys have only been in WCW for about three months at this point, And they would actually disappear again a month later as they signed with the WWF, where they went on to become world tag team champion so i don't know if they were working without contracts or how that came about i haven't been able Pretty to find much, that out yeah. yet. i haven't looked up recently but for i remember reading at some point a little while back that yeah they, they did not have a long-term contract they obviously made a very good showing of themselves at this pay-per-view and Ooh. before the few can continue wwe gone right do you want to come over here why because wcw Brilliant. <laughs> See, I was gen- I was I was generally shocked. Like for some reason, either I just didn't I didn't realise they were in WCW before WWE. Um, I know obviously they they went back there again again you know, mid to late nineties, but I, mm. I genuinely didn't know they were there in nineteen ninety. So this was a real quite quite a shock for me. Yeah, genu- genuinely for for like for for, for four months something yeah. like that. Yeah, and they got on the pay per view and they got on two Clash of the Champions. So yeah, they did all right for themselves. Um, so this one starts off as a brawl immediately before the bell can even ring. Sags rams Scott into the guardrail, which disconnects it from the other guardrails. Um, Sags smacks him over the back of the head with a chair. Um, Sags then tries a superplex, but this gets blocked and he gets a top rope belly to belly suplex from Scott. Scott later hoists Sags up on his shoulders. Rick comes off the top, which I believe is the debut of the Steiner's top rope bulldog. Um, Nobbs then comes in and hits Scott with a chair as the ref's putting Rick back to his tag rope. Nobbs then takes over on Scott. Um, the pace slows a bit as the Nasties are in charge. Nobbs clamps on an abdominal stretch. It's still Scott in there selling, needing to tag out to his big brother. Um, Scott's being worn down by a bear hug as the commentators talk about how Scott's back is injured after being slammed through a table by the Nasty Boys a couple of weeks ago on TV. Um, Scott eventually reverses the bear hug into a belly-to-belly suplex, but he isn't able to tag out. But Rick comes in anyway, nails Nobbs with a huge Steiner line. He goes for another one, but Nobbs moves and Rick spectacularly flies over the top rope. Um, the Nasties then nail Scott with a spike pile driver while the ref is checking on Rick. They go for a cover. 
but the ref stops counting because Nobbs, the illegal man, is still in the ring, which is a really good way of avoiding the Steiners kicking out on the move, but making sure that the Nasties don't win with the move either. Um, as the ref is putting Nobbs back, um, Rick comes in and lands an almighty chair shot across the back of Sags's head, which I think could very well be a receipt for the shot that Sags gave um, Scott over the back of the head uh, when the match just began. Um, Jim Ross says the match is getting out of control and Sags is now bleeding from the top of his head after that chair shot. Um, the Nasties use holds like a Boston Crab and a Camel Clutch to slow things down, and they're making frequent tags while preventing Ross from ta- uh, preventing Scott even from tagging out. Um, finally, after a missed corner splash, Rick gets tagged in, hitting Stein lines on both opponents, but both the Nasty Boys keep double teaming Rick and staying mostly on top of things. Scott then trips both the Nasty Boys up from the outside, drags Sags out of the ring before throwing him into the ring post. Scott gets back into the ring, lands his trademark Frankensteiner on knobs for a huge pop to get the pin even though I'm sure he wasn't the legal man in 15 minutes 24 knobs kind of jumps into it by mistake you see it on the replay and more or less lands on his head um, but then the nasty boys attack the Steiners again after the bell so very intense match what were your thoughts on, on this one Ross I, I, I mean I loved it I, I, I will take back what I said um, just because I'd forgotten this match was there was that, is, um, so whereas the other three tag matches on this pay-per-view had very similar structures this one was just wild yes they just, they just beat the shit out of each other like uh, with weapons and all sorts and just you know and so it was all just I mean especially in that early going it was just like beat the shit out of each other, hit each other with chairs and then high impact moves as well. Like the, um, uh, the big belly to belly from the, from, from the top rope and stuff like that. And I mean, just people went nuts for the Steiners. The crowd was so into the Steiner brothers. Well, they were um, doing things that we'd never seen before at this point in time. And that's it. And, you know, and actually, I mean, virtually no one looks like Scott Steiner as well. Like, you know, I mean, Rick, Rick's a big dude, but um, Scott is just he is something else compared to everyone else on that roster in terms of size and shape. He really is. Um, but, yeah, it was really fun just because they were just kicking the crap out of each other. Um, and uh, we get to see them a bit later on, I think, don't we? Like shortly later and it happens again and they just keep kicking the crap out of each other even more. So. Um, yeah, the, yeah straight they... straight after this, um, which I think we've yeah because they've edited out the uh, epic contest between Junkyard Dog and Moon Dog Rex. Um, yeah, we have Scott Stein getting interviewed by Tony Giovanni um, on the interview podium, and he then gets attacked by Jerry Sags disguised as a popcorn vendor, <laughs> closely followed by Nob. So yeah, the Nazis get one yeah. again. Yeah, and he proper wails on during that. You know, after they attack Scott, you know, in that promo where he's pretending to be the hot dog vendor, he gets the hot dog trend. He totally wails on him like. <laughs> Wells on Scott Steiner, um, but um, yeah, just really, really, I, I really enjoyed it just because it was different from the other three tag matches. Um, just you know, lamping the crap out of each other. And um, I actually met the Nasty Boys about a year ago uh, in 4FW, okay. and they are exactly the same. They, they <laughs> are those those guys are in a time warp of some kind because they look the same. They you know, apart from you know, a couple of years added onto them, but they dress the same, they act the same. Um, and that's exactly the kind of match they did in 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 four FW though against the Bruisers in a and uh, yeah just just weapons and carnage which is obviously what the Nasties are all about and I think I think that probably helped them stand out at the time because all the other tag teams were like right we're you know we're tag team moves we're in sync we're da 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 
And the Nasty Boys were like, we're just going to beat the crap out of you. So yeah. I think I've, yeah, that obviously helped them carve their own path and probably what led to them being signed by WWF at the time. Yeah, because I mean, the thing people sometimes forget, Liam, is that, you know, this was before hardcore wrestling was really a thing. Yeah, and not only that, but what what I appreciate about this match is they have uh, they've eased it in nicely in an otherwise regular body of good storytelling tag teams. Um, I, lo- I love the little touches with some of this. Like they've immediately gone for the brawl. It's a bit of a grudge match, and you had that you had that spot where you know the Doomsday Bulldogs used very early. Again, more more big spots being used and not being sold for a massively long time. But again, if you're enjoying the match, you turn the blind eye. Um, and they did a thing where they break it up with a chair and it leads to a period of control for the for the hills. But you'll see they they hit a spike pole driver. And the Steiners return favour. And there's a really not a great, like, psychologically, there's a really good, you know, eye for an eye. The baby faces are just giving it back. That's the intensity of it. It really works. And they work over the Steiners. You know, there's a period where they're working on the neck and the back and some great shots of a bloodied sags. Uh, and... All of these things combined for every other time we've referenced this match, and it seems any opportunity we we get the chance to mention it in passing on another show, we uh, we do so. And and this is I won't go into too much detail because we already have told the story. But yeah, that that VHS I I borrowed, I I took it into secondary school age, like fourteen, fifteen. And it somehow got a an entire car during like a like a low down lesson where not much was going on. It got an entire class hooked on this match in particular. Got them hooked on the concept that maybe wrestling isn't a complete shower of shit because a lot uh-huh. of those guys definitely weren't your your typical wrestling fans, but they were all glued to this match, and it had that combination of everything that that made it work. And another little side thing I want to add is a note to Jerry Sags in particular. He's one of these guys. Whenever you watch him in a wrestling match, you'll notice he's he's actually one of the uh, most monotone people, especially with like facial expressions and things like that. Uh, he doesn't actually put much emotion on his face. He's pretty much one note, but. Part of me actually come to recognise that when it comes to, uh, to to brawls like this and the, and the typical nasty boy stuff, it actually made him more of a, more of a menace because he's a guy who's who's just always got this casual grin on his face while getting punched in the head and weapons on him and doing it to other people and you and you kind of develop a certain understanding for the fact that he's just a a complete and utter sadist. Well, I I kind of always think that that they would have been perfect in mid-90s ECW. But obviously, they were signed to the big leagues as such and never never needed to go there. because. And, and again, that's another good sign. Yeah, we've we've yeah. talked about several other talents around both WWF, WCW, people who flitted between the two and were never, ever out of work. People like you know, Ray Trailer, people like Meng, people like John Tenter. Yeah, ECW would have been a struggle for them, I think, because there'd have been so many other matches of a similar ilk. They wouldn't have stood out. And as as we now know, there's really not much about the Nasty Boys. If everyone's doing that brawl on the same show, they're going to fall behind a lot of the other guys who are going to have more hustle and whatever. But this is why this match in particular really stands out, because they have they, they kept things basic with some of the tag formula stuff 
uh, in and around the animosity and the brawling. But they held their own in that, and, and it made for a great combination. That's why this match stands out. And some of the other uh, really good Nasty Boys brawls that we can think of, they they had that extra level of energy that, that guys like Cactus Jack obviously helped out with, those famous yeah. 94 brawls. So certain ones stood out because there wasn't competition of that sort of match on the card, and because they, they, they were in there with the right dance partners. But as a standalone situation, you realise they, they actually got quite especially as they got older uh it got quite plodding and quite samey so i think ecw would have exposed the shit out of them to be honest fair enough um okay we will move on to our last tag team match of the evening and this one is for the nwa as it was then world tag team titles as the four horsemen duo of rick flair and arn anson challenged the champion's Doom, Ron Simmons and Butch Reed with their manager, Theodore R. Long, a.k.a. Teddy Long. Um, So Anson starts with Simmons, but he can't compete with his power. Um, And the crowd here are pretty quiet, probably because both teams are heels and they can't figure out who to get behind. Um, The story early on is that whatever the horsemen do, they still can't match Simmons. Teddy Long then gets into the ring, gets into an argument with Flair and slaps him in the face, which makes the commentators properly lose their shit. Um, we then switch to Flair v. Reed. Flair gets press slammed by Reed, of course he does, because as we uh, do on any any Ric Flair match on our Nitro watch longs, you have to have the Ric Flair press slam count. Um, we then switch to Flair versus Reed, which I think headlined the Clash of the Champions a few years before this. Um, Flair gets press slammed by Reed, as I said. Um, then so does Anderson when he comes in to uh, help his partner. Reed is keeping Flair at distance with a succession of punches, which keep dropping Flair to the canvas. Finally, the horsemen get the advantage, and an Anderson-Boston crab combined with a Flair knee drop to the back of Simmons' head slows him right down. The commentators wonder if Doom have burned themselves out and that the horsemen have done a sort of a rope-a-dope tactic. Um, Anderson lands his trademark spinebuster on Simmons, but Simmons kicks out em- uh, kicks out powerfully to emphasize his strength again. The horsemen are making frequent tags and have cut the ring in half. Flair clamps the figure four onto Simmons, but Simmons eventually reverses it, so Flair is able to tag out to Anderson. And the horsemen are doing a fantastic job of preventing Anderson from tagging into Reed in a number of different ways. Anderson ducks uh, early for a backdrop and gets face planted into the canvas by Simmons. And finally, Simmons is able to tag Reed in, who cleans house on both horsemen. Um, Anderson goes for a pile driver on Simmons, but Reed cuts him off with a top rope body, a shoulder block. Anderson then hits the DDT on Reed to a big pop, but Simmons makes the save. All four men then start brawling on the outside of the ring and they go down the aisle. The bell rings. Both teams have been counted out to a mild booing from the crowd after 18 minutes, 20 seconds. What did you make of this one, Ross? Um, again, you know, this I, I probably didn't enjoy this one as much as the other tag matches. Um, and again, it probably went a little bit long for my liking. I don't think it needed to be as long as it, it did, particularly given the ending. Um, but there was, I, I mean, there was some great, I just, I just love the dynamic of the horsemen. Um, just because there's, there's the moment, and as you get in a lot of Ric Flair matches, uh, and it always starts with the sort of the lifting knee um, knee breaker that he does, where he lifts the guy up and then and sort of crushes their knee across his own knee. Um, and from that point on, that's where Flair goes to work on the knee. And what was great is from that point on, 
all the tagging with Anderson became about Anderson's helping Flair work over the leg. Um, obviously, which would lead to the figure four as well. Yeah. So I kind I really like that dynamic between them in that it's like Anderson can see Flair's going to try be setting up for the figure four. So oh, you know, and even things like he would step on, um, you know, he'd step on the guy's leg and then tag Flair in, so he's still got the leg pinned down, um, and doing a lot of work like that, which I, I thought was really, you know, yeah. I thought was really really good. Again, you got you know Arn hit his DDT in there as well, which got the massive pop, um, and it was you know such a beautiful DDT that Arn did. Uh, yeah. which is great um, and the thing with the leg there as well is like they're, they're holding on to Simmons leg which they've already worked over to prevent him getting across the ring to Butch Reed to make the tag yeah and it's it, 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 so I like I like the tag game that they, the horsemen played I think they they sort of were playing that you know they I, I like the fact that it's like well you two are clearly the power team so we can't play your game but we'll you know we'll try make you play our game which is the you know We'll tag in, we'll tag out, and we'll we'll steadily work on you. Sort of is like you know war of attrition kind of uh, yeah. kind of mentality, which I thought was really great. Uh, there was a great moment though. Flair did his um, his flare flip, which is not the mm-hmm. same as the flare the flare flop. He did do the flare flop, um, but he did the flare flip where he got sent over the turnbuckle when he actually kicked the cameraman and really <laughs> kicked the cameraman yeah. off the, off the apron. Um, but the cameraman actually just you see them cut to a different camera angle. The cameraman just about manages to recover, but it's a it's a pretty funny moment. Um, as you see, like the guy, because he's right on the turnbuckle corner as Flair comes towards him, and I don't think he, he obviously clearly was not expecting Flair to come all the way over. He just kicks him straight off. So I mean, has he never watched the Ric Flair match <laughs> before? Like, how, how did he not know the spots? Honestly, <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, it was, it, it was enjoyable. I did, I did enjoy it. Like I said, I, I enjoyed the dynamics, but um, I probably didn't enjoy it as, as some of those other the other matches we'd seen. <laughs> Liam. Yeah, um, there, there, there was a few little things I really appreciated about this, and yeah, there's a there, there's a there's a lot of tag team oversubscription on this show in general, but I, I, I thought they 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 slowly did a, a good job of, of of getting the hill versus hill thing going. Uh, it's clear that they want to try and get the conniving horseman as the the actual bad guys in the match and uh, doom, you know, because they're big and tough and badass they can kind of easily slot into a de facto face thing um i really appreciated paul lee like going out of his way to establish that rick flair is by no means a uh, a fish out of water in a tag team environment yes. going back to his his early accolades as a, as a tag team wrestler and things like that um and was it just me is when they did that spot where they're setting up for a pole driver and Arn gets shoulder tackled instead. Uh, I actually thought for, for a pretty simplistic thing, especially when they showed it from another angle on a replay, I actually thought it was a really cool spot. It was by no means anything special or spectacular or risky. And yet it just looks so cool. Yeah. Just being in that setup for a move and being right for the picking of a sh- a flying shoulder tackle off the top is probably a really good underused wrestling move. I just thought it looked much better than you'd imagine it would with me describing it now. Um, and well, it then, perfectly plays into the, the dynamic of the match that, that Ross was talking about there, where you've got the, the technique and the finesse of the horseman and the strength and power of Doom. Yeah, it just I felt I felt visually it was just really really good for such a for such a an easy thing to pull off. 
you know, it's a very, very, very simple, basic thing. And I just, I, it's just, I thought I'd give that a shout because I really dug it. Uh, another interesting little thing, I, I've been tallying these up, is, um, you know, Arn's DDT wasn't sold for very long. So if, I think every tag team match on this show is is having a little bit of that. And it just goes to show that pretty much every, every era of wrestling does does fall into that a little bit. And it's amazing how many people have fallen for this crap that, oh, AEW is, is flippy guys not selling anything. It's like, wait, wake up. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, the, 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 the finish was unsatisfactory. But there, there was enough to, if we were to use a Nitro watch-along pass-fail system, Dino, I think we'd be happy with what we've seen here. Absolutely, yes. Okay, match, well, match number five for us. It's the United <laughs> States title. It's Stan Hansen challenging uh, longtime champ Lex Luger. So Hansen comes out with his bull rope, chewing tobacco, and he's destroying the set. He looks terrifying, and is, he, he basically looks the absolute polar opposite of Lex Luger. And, yeah, we've talked before about how great matches and great feuds um, have complete opposite characters, and this is absolutely it. Um, so yes, Luger hails from the, this very city of Chicago, Illinois, of course. Um, so he gets a good reaction and he does look a bit apprehensive, perhaps because he's facing a half blind lunatic who's used to beating the crap out of people in Japan. Um, how old do you think Stan Hansen was at this point? Uh, late forties, maybe Liam, uh, probably 40 bang on maybe. It's 41, but I would go with oh. Ross. He looks about 10 years older. <laughs> yeah, he really, I don't know if it's the big moustache or what, but yeah, I, I was, I thought he was like in his 50s by this point, but um, yeah, 41. Um, Hansen quickly gains the upper hand with his brawling tactics using boots, punches and knees to keep Luger under control. Um, the match spills to the outside where Luger actually gets the advantage over Hansen. Um, but the story here so far is that he's fighting Hansen's brawling game rather than his own power game. Um, Hansen is soon in charge again. The crowd are quite quiet for this one, just as they were for the previous match. Um, Hansen gets a two count after a bulldog, but then he misses an elbow drop and Luger lands a drop kick, which isn't a move you often see him do. Hansen knocks the referee down somewhat accidentally when the ref tries to separate him in the corner, just as Hansen's arm is swinging back for a punch. Um, at one point, he looks to be setting up the lariat, which is a move that Jim Ross on commentary builds up and builds up and builds up. In fact, they both do, and they both, you know, Paul Heyman, Paul Daintree says, you don't kick out if you get hit with this. Um, so, um, yeah, he's setting up for a lariat, but Luger hits him with a clothesline of his own. Um, then Dan Spivey, uh, a former WWE wrestler in his own right, and Hansen's tag team partner in all Japan. Um, he then comes to ringside and throws his bull rope and cowbell to Hansen while the ref is down. Um, he leaves ringside. Um, Hansen then goes to hit Luger with the uh, bull rope and cowbell, but Luger evades and backdrops him. Um, Luger then signals for the torture act, but for some reason he decides to charge at Hansen first, who levels Luger with what at first looked like a clumsy-looking lariat, but I, I think, and I'm sure you'll, you'll um, correct me if I'm wrong or tell me I'm right if I'm right, but he, I think Luger's approaching it from the from the, the wrong side as such, but we'll come on to that in a minute. In a minute. Um, so Luger goes down, Hansen makes a, a cover, and he gets the title winning three count in nine minutes, 30 seconds. And with a f the exception of a, f a few people um, celebrating, the crowd are mostly shocked. because I don't think anyone expected Hansen to win this. 
Um, and it's also significant to note that apart from a 15-day period where Michael Hayes held the belt, Luger had been the US champion since February 1989, so like a year and a half later. Um, Ross, what were your thoughts on this one? And, and did Luger screw up the finish? Um, I mean, first of all, I'm going to have to go back to just before the match where we had the, the Stan Hansen backstage promo just oh, yes. before the match where he compares Luger to a tiny pumpkin, which he's holding which he then throws on the floor and it clearly rolls under the table behind him and hits the backdrop, which we then find out is made of cloth because it shakes. And, and Hanson kind of turns around to look at the cloth. So it's what should have been a really, like really awesome promo just made me end up giggling. Um, just because it was, it just came across as slightly wacky. Um, I mean, yeah. Perish the thought that they'd redo it. Or anything. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Do you know what I mean? Like, it just, yeah. And I think that's really, I think that, that's really the, the 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 key, you know, the key running theme here is that we've got some really great matches just interspersed and connected by terrible <laughs> segments and promos, <laughs> and this just this just added to it. Um, this was probably my least favourite match of, uh, of the night. It just it felt very repetitive to me. And being that it was one of the shorter ones, or certainly, you know, the viewing time was shorter. Um, yeah, I was kind of just... I, I just there, was, there was just a lot of kicking and punching from Hansen. Um, I, didn't, I, I didn't really feel like it came across as a, a very particularly interesting match. I felt like Luger was uh, trying... He he sells to, he 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 g's up to the crowd an awful lot, particularly in the early going. So like everything he does, he turns to the crowd, um, like he's he's trying a bit too hard. Um, so yeah, I just yeah it wasn't I, I did yeah like I said just didn't particularly enjoy it. And yeah, the finish was was and all the way through. I was sitting there going because I knew I knew I knew that Hanson won it, and I was like I can't wait for the lariat. I can't wait to see the lariat. <laughs> like no matter what happens in this match. He's going to clean his head off with the lariat. And then it just like, like an awkward flopping punch. Um, yeah, I, I'm not quite sure what happened. It's either between Luger perhaps being slightly off centre and, as we know, um, uh, Stan Hansen's eyesight wasn't amazing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to, which is a slight understatement. Um, yeah, and it just, it was a, it was a shame actually, because I, it, I think in that last bit of going, sort of from um, uh, Dan Spivy coming out, it kind of started to pick up a bit then like with him coming out, throwing the cowbell in, you know, and all that, like him G up the lariat, Luger hitting his own. It started to kind of start to feel a bit excited. So I think that finish was, was just a bit disappointing. And again, it kind of led to that shock that probably, you know, played into that shock reaction at the end where, yeah. where, where Hanson won the belt. Cause I suppose yeah, you want him to kind of not Luger's head off to, to emphasize the fact that he's, he's won the, won the match and won the mm. title. But it, it seemed to me that obviously Hansen throws the lariat from the left hand side from with his left arm, I should say. Yeah. And, and so therefore the opponent should come in, you know, to the, to the, to Hansen's left and Luger yeah. kind of comes into his, is right, and Hansen therefore kind of has to hook it over, and as you say, then it looks like a, a punch rather than a clothesline. Yeah, yeah, I think there's, there's definitely some sort of missed time there, which is which is a shame, like you say, because I think like seeing the lariat in its full would have really helped sell the finish. Yeah. See yeah. now, um, I think a previous guest of ours, Justin Richards, would have had a field down this one because I remember him going in depth on uh, clothesline receiving etiquette. Yeah. If I remember correctly, and how, how and it just made it makes you marvel. As someone who's never stepped into the ring, it makes uh, guys like us marvel at the intricacies required to get this absolutely spot on. And I can I can respect that to to look at it from a purely insider technical point of view. Yeah, 
Luger's probably botched that finish. I understand that rationale. But now I want to explain to you guys why it actually makes complete sense from a kayfabe perspective. Because if I'm Lex Luger and wrestling's real, uh, I am training to avoid the lariat. And I'm training that if I'm going to charge Stan Lanson at any point in this match for any reason whatsoever, that I need to come in on the other side. And obviously, it's one of them things that would have worked if the commentators were were able to stress that and bring it across. Because as we've mentioned time and time again, uh, a lot of these psychological things live and die with commentary because they're not obvious to the to, to the casual eye. But yeah, from a KFO situation, yeah, I'd completely understand why Luger would want to run on the other side. And from a real life perspective, I would understand that anyone would want to run on the other side of Hanson, knowing his reputation for being so stiff with him. I'd kind of want to force him to do a, a bit of a lame duck version for the sake of keeping my head on its shoulders. But yeah, this wasn't a very good match to watch. And we've already done Starcade 90, and we know the rematch wasn't actually brilliant either, which is a shame. No, they just didn't seem to work well together, did they? You were right, Dina, when you said earlier, this is, this is a natural rivalry. They, they they put Luger over. They even literally call him like an, an Adonis type. Uh, and they, they stress how... You know, Stan Hansen's like the most disgusting human being on the planet. There's a natural rivalry there, but it never translated. And as as it turns out, it wasn't just the politics of, as we saw with the Starcade rematch, they couldn't have Hansen pinned by Luger. There was a lot more to it. It just wasn't a good end result feud, unfortunately. Some things work better on paper. Hansen versus Luger seems to be one of those things. Yeah. Incidentally, uh, if you do want to go back and listen to the episode with Justin Richards, that was episode number 20. We did a, a long way back um, where we looked at Super Bowl 95, the Hogan Vader main event. No, no, no. Not the Hogan Vader main event. No? The Paul Roma opening match. That is, <laughs> that is how you address that. Paul Roma that. and Alex Wright. The Paul Roma Super Show. The Paul Roma's last match in WCW because he got fired immediately after that match, match. For being a monumental dickhead. Epic shithousery, I believe. Oh, before shithousery was a thing, there was Paul Roma. Yes, indeed. What what was um the, the the clothesline etiquette that Justin talked about? Do you remember what that was? Um, he was he was was he talking about tra- didn't he get to train with Rick Martel or someone or someone else? My complete botch. I feel like he did see, he did some additional training with a, with a pretty big name, and he said oh, about Kurgan from WWF. Was it? Yeah. And in he Canada. Said, mate, yeah, maybe, but then Kurt. I feel like it might have been someone a bit more seasoned, but I'll have to go back and listen to it myself now. But he said about learning new things, things he didn't think of, and something Cuban about assassin. and so, assassin, yeah, so, something, it. something about he had always been taught to go a certain way on a clothesline, but then he was taught a new wrinkle to that to, to appreciate. It, it was really good, insightful stuff. So insightful, and it resonated so much. I've completely forgotten it. As have I. But my excuse is five concussions. What's yours? Yeah. Six concussions. <laughs> Small print. All six concussions may or may not have been fabricated. 
in 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 my early career, um, I was I had several training sessions under Justin Richards, um, and I've completely forgotten what he said. So please, don't, I hope he doesn't listen to this. <laughs> so the thing we draw from this is that Justin Richards is a completely forgettable human being. <laughs> I hope you're listening, Justin. You've been I'm really so sorry, down Justin. the river here. So sorry. <laughs> oh God. Right. <laughs> sorry, Justin. Um. So Teddy Long is then up on the uh, interview podium and he states that the horsemen will not be getting another shot of the tag team titles from Doom ever again, which of course means that the horsemen will be getting a tag team shot of Doom at the next pay-per-view. In fairness, Uh, in fairness, I'm pretty sure and I'm not, I I don't have the exact details to, to my mind. Well, I'm proving how good my memory is so far already, but I'm pretty sure this led to a series of, sort of non-title matches with stipulations. It, it kind of carried on the feud where they had to really sing for their supper, the horsemen, to get another chance here. And it led to, you'll remember those matches where uh, in one of them, Teddy Long, like either Doom or one member of Doom lost and Teddy Long had to be Ric Flair's limo driver. Yes. As as a consequence, and 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 that actually led to the thing that would w- would attempt to explain why Flair wasn't at Starcade, and then you find out that he's the Black Scorpion. And I, you'll remember in that episode, I mentioned how, how you'd like to think that they they kind of said that you know Doom and the Horsemen managed to find some sort of truce, and you know being heels at the end of the day, Doom agreed to do like a fake attack to help the horseman out or something. It, maybe in return for buggering off after the tag title match and never never darkening their doorstep again. So I don't know. Like there there was stuff to it. I mean, we'd have to do like a watch along esque recap of weekly television yes. to know. <laughs> but I like to feel like this was a this was a heels broken promise and not a WCWR ridiculously crap broken promise. Of which there are plenty. Of course, yes. Um, so we're now coming up to Sting uh, defending the world title against Sid Vicious. We have um, we have Missy Hyatt and Paul E. Dangerously with Jim Ross, and they're both predicting a win for Sid. Um, and the theme seems to be that Sting has got an enormous, you know, physically imposing challenger, but he's also got the Black Scorpion on his mind. Um, who who appeared obviously in that tremendous magic skit uh, at the beginning of the show, Ross? Yeah. <laughs> yes, doing his best, David Blaine. Yes. <laughs> um, so uh, Sting comes out. I do like his long jacket with a, an underlying hint of sequins, and I, and I do hope our guest, who is a connoisseur of ring gear, it must be said, <laughs> does too. How how have you coped in this pandemic with not having any shows to show off any new ring gear with? Do you know what? Literally just before uh, March, I had two new pairs of trunks made, uh, one which I wore in my last match before sh- before lockdown. Uh, and the second pair I have never worn. And I also had purchased a brand new pair of boots as well. So um, I have a set of wrestling gear which has gone unworn um, and I cry about it at night. You can't retire <laughs> yet. You can't retire yet. You've got to wear those boots. Yeah. If anything, I'm literally just when when wrestling shows are back on next year, I'm just I'm going to do one match just so I can wear this set of gear, and then I'm like, nope, no, I am done, I'm done now, I can retire for good. 
forever, <laughs> probably. Maybe. Maybe. Till till next time. Till the next um, time, yeah. Yeah. So um Sting gets a good job <clears throat> coming out, but a sizable portion of this crowd are behind Sid too. Um the match moves quickly to the outside where Sting gets the upper hand and continues to do so back inside the ropes. Um Sid misses a shoulder block into the corner and Sting continues to work over the left arm and shoulder of Sid. Sting's got Sid on the floor in a head scissors, but then Sid impressively nips up and levels Sting with a clothesline. Um, Sid then gets a two count with a power slam. Sid reverses a whip into the corner, but Sid dodges a stinger splash and Sting crashes to the apron. Sid then poses to the crowd, which allows Sting to climb to the top uh, for a cross body block, which is a move we've seen him win plenty of matches with. But Sid kicks out at just one to emphasize his power and strength. Um, Just as Sting is gaining some momentum, he gets caught with a big boot to the face and falls to the outside. Sid then continues to fight Sting down the rampway, including a slam to the wooden ramp but Sid again poses to the crowd back in the ring which means Sid, uh, Sting sprints down the ramp and dives over the top rope on top of Sid. Sid then retreats down the aisle as the horsemen appear at ringside. So um, Sting and Sid go brawling down the aisle. Um, they then reappear. Sting goes back into the ring, goes for a, a slam on Sid but he collapses under Sid's weight. Sid covers him the ref counts to three, and Sid is announced as the new world champion as fireworks go off and orange and black balloons fall to the floor. But on closer inspection, Sting seems to be a lot taller than before, and his face paint, which had previously peeled off, has miraculously reappeared. Um, the real Sting then reappears in the ring with a rope tied around his wrist and starts attacking Sid. The referee restarts the match because we've clearly had a fake Sting uh, pinned. Not the last time a fake Sting would appear in WCW. Um, Sting punches Sid into the corner, lands a Stinger splash, and gets a three count in 12 minutes 38 of a smoke and mirrors main event in the replay we see the real sting and the fake sting who is barry windham in identical tights and who'd had his uh, long blonde hair cut off into a crew cut come face to face with each other so uh, what do you think of this one and what do you make of the uh, should we call it creative finish to the main event um i mean my first impression straight was does it sid just i mean despite wearing leather chaps Sid just looks a million bucks. He really does. Like his whole presentation of like he was tall, you know, big jaw, mus- muscular. Because he was like, what was he? Nearly seven foot, wasn't he? You know, six nine, I think. Yeah, six, six nine. You know, he just looked amazing, didn't he? Like he just, you know, and I mean, it's a shame. I always think it's a shame with Sid that he never really became that sort of world class main eventer. Um, because obviously he's a multiple world champion, and is he in the Hall of Fame? I don't think he's, he's not in the Hall of Fame. I don't think so. No. I think he should. I mean, I think he should at least be in the Hall of Fame, being that he's a he's a he's a former WCW and WWF champion on like he'll, multiple he'll times on both occasions. Yeah, Arn Anderson think, will induct him. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Arn Anderson will uh, will snip the tape. Uh, <laughs> anyway, um, moving on quickly. Um, yeah, Arn will just give him the pair of scissors back at the end of it. Or whatever. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, where were we? So yeah, so Sid looks amazing. Um, I really enjoyed the match. I thought Sid does a nip up. Sid yes. takes, Sting takes him into a headlock. Ta- you know, they did the headlock takeover. Legs is and Sid nips up. It's it's incredible. I mean, he was obviously like peak fitness here, um, and he looked every inch of it. And I really enjoyed the match between them. I like the fact you know Sting was really working the arm, um, and yeah, it was, it was a really enjoyable match. They were. 
I think literally a few steps off a really good finish in this, but there was a couple of key points where they just got it wrong. Uh, it's, oddly enough, WCW got it wrong when they could have got. I I actually thought, uh, unless you were, you know, I th- I thought the camera cuts were quick enough that when Wyndham came out and sort of rolled in the ring, he had his back to the camera. Yeah. Uh, he picks it up and hit, Sid covered his face as he dropped onto him and did the pin. I thought that was done well enough from anyone watching on TV probably was sold by it. Mm. Um, and suddenly, you know, the, and then, they, you know, they did the big celebration with Sid, the balloons are coming from the ceiling. It all looks like, Oh, holy shit. He pinned, you know, and all that. Um, the problem is, is then obviously sting then comes out, the real sting comes out and you don't see the two stings together at any point. No, like so, the old double Hebners. Yeah, that's yeah. what you wanted, was it? That, yeah, that you needed, image. You needed to see that moment in the middle of the ring. Really, you needed to see the pair of them in the ring, even if they're going to do the, you know, the Spider-Man pointing at each other meme, or you know, the doink spot. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think you needed that because you didn't actually. I think you mentioned it. You didn't actually see the two of them together until the replay. Mm. So I think it was possibly quite confusing up until that point. Uh, certainly if I was a child watching this, um, I would have been quite confused as to what was going on. And it really would have clarified, but what also really irritated me. And I think it really, and what really, really cheesed me off. So the real sting comes out. I think that they're, they're trying to put over the fact it's the real sting. The ref obviously has clocked, but it, it's not made obvious. So they're obviously like, right, well, this match has to carry on. Um, sting actually just clocks it in the face with the belt. And it's like, Hold on a minute. If this if this match is carrying on and you're saying it hasn't, this match hasn't stopped because you've realised that's the fake Sting. Why was Sting just not DQ'd right there on the spot? Because he I didn't notice that. I, was front, too, yeah, I, I mean, must he, have been too busy writing my notes at that yeah, point. So before he backs him into the corner for the he wallops him with the belt right in front of the referee and there's no DQ. And actually, this this is actually something I did make a note of. Throughout the night, in several matches, the refs got shoved by wrestlers. And there was no, there was no consequence to any of it. Um, you know, um, yeah. I was a bit iffy on the Hanson one. The, the Hanson back elbow where he KOs the ref slightly. I was a bit iffy on actually should have that been a DQ. But there was a few instances in other tag matches. If you go back and watch, referees get shoved by wrestlers and there was no consequence. Um, so, but yeah, for don't me. Don't you they, dare throw him over the top rope. Yeah, you know. <laughs> So it's, I think they, you know, that really spoiled it for me. The fact that, you know, Sid just clocks him with the belt and then goes on and does the finish and, and, and pins him, whatever, um, to kind of no consequence at all. And then obviously, like I said, it's only then that you see the two things together. So I, you know, it was a bit of a hokey and a bit shenanigan-y, but I think it, they could have done it better. Um, they, they got the first bit right with Wyndham coming in and getting pinned. And, you know, like I said, the camera angles I thought were done so well that you, Perhaps, you know, you I, I, as a kid, I wouldn't have been able to tell. Yeah. Um, but then I think they really balls it up by not having that interaction between the two stings and not 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 doing those things there. So it's a shame because I think that would have been a really good finish to the to, to, to the pay-per-view. See, now I, I, I'd have to double check the the exact laws of professional wrestling, but I'm pretty sure I saw a page, an appendix, if you will, that clearly stated that you were entitled to one free weapon shot to your opponent's face if they had attempted to put some sort of rope <laughs> bondage on you. 
it, you know, if you've if you've been a victim of rope bondage backstage during the match, you you allowed one shot with a with a belt or a chair or something. So that's I think amazing. that's why he let that go. Just but, but it's like play is, advantage. But the question is, Liam, was was he kidnapped by the horseman or by the black scorpion? <laughs> well, it wasn't Flair and Anderson because they showed up as like a as a, as a way of buying their cohorts' time, presumably. To, to get done, you that would that would leave Sid and Wyndham maybe, but then Wyndham's managed to somehow blindside Sting and get him tied up without actually blemishing his his immaculate makeup. Um, and yeah, then there's then there's maybe the Black Scorpion who at this stage even WCW don't know who the fuck he is. But um, but yeah, I mean Sting Sting and Sid Sting has always been a bit of a safety net for Sid. In that they've they've wrestled each other various pay-per-views on and off throughout the history of WCW. I mean, they've clashed in '90, they've clashed in '93, they did it again in '99 when Sid returned to WCW, and Sting always ensured that Sid's matches weren't te- as terrible as they could be. He was he was a familiar opponent. He he obviously brought some energy and some moves, and they trusted each other enough for the for the match to be above the Sid average. So you you were never going to get like the worst case scenario with the two of them. But yeah, the the, the finish was a bit of a joke. But um, the one thing this did, I, it, I kind of went off on a bit of a, 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 a inner monologue tangent while rewatching it. It made me wonder, given that. They they didn't know what to do with the the black scorpion. They they put they almost pay more attention to the scorpion angle with Sting than they are uh, with Sting versus Sid. Which is when you consider this is also a pay per view. It's it's ridiculous yeah. when they do that, and they're, they're clearly already looking ahead to the next pay per view match. You can't redo really it when you're expecting people to pay money. But it made me wonder. Here's a storyline. Correct me if someone has done this and I'm completely wrong, but here's something I'd love to see someone do. You've got a babyface champion and you have a mysterious uh, masked person who no one knows their identity and they're making threats like Scorpion was, maybe not as ridiculous with the fucking magic tricks and stuff like that, but they're making like, you know, avowed threats and making these little hints at who they are. No one can figure out where, and and everyone's expecting there's going to be a confrontation at the end of this between the mysterious enemy of the champ and the champ and at some point before that you you have a match like this where another formidable heel eh, or even a baby face eh, is challenging the champion and that wrestler shocks everyone by winning the belt legitimately it's an actual title change not like this one and then you find out that the new champion was the mysterious person all along. They never intended to have a match while in the mask. They never intended to do an actual confrontation. They just wanted to, as as was the, the story coming into this, they went to get in the champion's head and ruin this match. This this match was the end game. And the whole thing, all the threats were just a made up thing. Um, I just think that would have been more interesting than what we got. If you find out to say, hypothetically, if you find out to say Sid, <laughs> was the man behind the black scorpion he was never going to be the yeah. scorpion because the scorpion was like much shorter and did all this stuff he's paid someone to do that just to make sure he gets the title it would have just been more interesting the champion yeah. yeah it would have been more interesting 
of a payoff at the at the very least, and you, and it would have worked doubly so if it would have been a babyface because that would have been the heel turn. They'd have been doing this yeah. nefarious stuff the whole time, and we've seen something like that work very well in NXT recently, because in what for me was just such a gloriously mid south angle, um, Lorcan and Birch perennial contenders never champions all this time just on the on the kind of periphery of the tag team scene have won the titles out of the blue even though they weren't supposed to be in a match and it turns out it was part of their plan all along and they're now part of a heel group with with pat mcafee which which i love so so these sort of little swerve that that's how you do an actual swerve and it can be satisfying but sorry to go off on that tangent. It's just if I if I tried to spend that five minutes speaking about this ridiculous finish, I feel like I'd depress myself. And obviously, Danny Birch, a man that Ross and I are very familiar yeah. with, as uh, overjoyed, Stone. overjoyed yeah. to, to, to hear to read that news earlier this week. Obviously, yeah. again, old running buddy of you and I. So it was, uh, yes, I was going to say I obviously yeah. take all the credit for managing uh, the tag team of Sticks and Martin Stone to the British tag team <laughs> titles all those years ago. He'd have never done it without me, or something like that. So, yeah. so what did you guys think of that angle? Have you seen the actual angle and the way they won the titles? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, uh, without taking into account the fact that, you know, he's a friend of yours, and I know you're overjoyed, but, but I, I, I thought just as a general story, I, I thought it was really well done. And it's yeah, actually I... turned them face, because the, the Undisputed Era, to turn them face would have been tricky without it being obnoxious. And I, I think they've done it perfectly. Yeah, I, uh... I, think it fits. I think it fits well. Like, I mean, it took me a minute to work out who the guy was for a minute. <laughs> <laughs> like, they did the unveil and I was like, who's that? And then I, then it all clicked and I was like, oh, okay, now it all makes sense now. Like, it, it kind of all makes sense together now. So, yeah, yeah. I thought it tied it quite nicely. Yeah, I haven't seen it myself yet. I've read about it, but I've got it on my... Uh things to watch and i've got the i've got this week off work so i'll definitely be watching that absolutely so, yeah. do watch yeah. it as i said there, there's something of the i think you agree when you watch it it's got a, a touch of the mid south about it's a very oh you can't do that wrong with wrestling that. angle excellent excellent so i mean with with this pay-per-view or at least what we saw of this pay-per-view um would we would we go thumbs up or thumbs down on this one ross um, I'll, I'll give it a thumbs up because, you know, um, there were some nice little touches. Uh, one little thing I meant to mention, I really appreciate the um, the ropes and the turnbuckles were orange and black, which mm. I thought were really cool. A uh, nice pumpkin colour. We're yet, we're, we're not quite in the WCW era of pimping out the entire arena with like gravestones and like Halloween theme yet, yes. uh, which, which was to come later in the 90s. Um, but yeah, no, I thought overall, I thought the match quality was really good. Like I said, you know, I summarised this in like, you know, some average to great matches on this pay-per-view interspersed with just shoddy promos and, and, and shenanigans and, you know, just daftness. Um, but I think, you know, you kind of enjoy them because some of the matches were so, were so good and there's just so much good stuff to pull out of the, of the quality of the wrestling itself. Um, so, yeah, I'll definitely go with the thumbs up for this pay-per-view. Excellent. Liam? Yeah, me too. Uh, first off, when you mentioned, uh, yeah, they really pimped out the thing. That's true. It got it, it got more glorious with each passing year. But what I found fascinating, considering that, you know, very quickly after we publish this episode, we're going to have NXT Halloween Havoc, which is, which is awesome that they're finally digging that back out. Um, and to think of the, the, the legacy that made everyone clamour for it to be the next thing, along with, you know, we've had like war games come back and In Your House come back. And they wanted, everyone wanted Halloween Havoc to be brought back by WRE. 
And the reason why it's had that legacy, that endearing legacy as, as one of those W's finest concepts is because this is the second one. The first was in 1989. And even you watch that opening sequence, they've put more effort into that than they had for any other pay-per-view. You know, they've got the music and the, and, and the imagery, almost like an animated opening, you know. And as you guys have said, it got better and better with each year. We had the mini movie in 93, which was so bad it was entertaining with Tony Schiavone. Oh, Tony uh, Schiavone, yeah. yeah. The, uh, the police will be round your house soon, Mr. Schiavone. And Operation uh, U-Tree. Yeah, Operation U-Tree <laughs> style <laughs> mini-movie. And yes. uh, yeah, just the amount of effort they really put into what is already in America, you know, it's such a big thing, Halloween. And yeah. we're, we're, we're pretty fond of it ourselves over here as well. As a result, it had that legacy at reputation and right early on you see all the signs here that they, they took it uh, as a big deal even back then and it'd only get better so fair enough and that's why I'm so glad it's, it's coming back as for the show itself yeah I think the trims helped it if we'd have watched the whole three hour thing and we do endeavour to because we don't really want to rip people off we want to cover the whole thing but this one of those rare cases where the network has actually put the short version up and it's actually done the show a fucking favour if you ask me because yeah. there, there's there's some really grotty things about it but there's enough goodness and there's there's the Steiner's nasties man that we have mentioned on so many episodes that we finally got to cover. Uh, yeah, there, there's more than enough here to say, you know, dig this up, watch it, and be glad that they've trimmed it for you. Yeah. I think I'm right in saying that in, in future years, as those um, set designs got more and more elaborate, that they would have various inside jokes of names of people on the um, gravestones. Yep, that's correct. We've yeah. referenced a few of them as we've gone, because obviously we've covered it quite. We, we've not got a lot of Halloween Havocs left. So we if haven't. anyone, if any future guests want to do a Halloween Havoc, you've got a couple left, and you better get eighty nine. The original one is still um is still there with yeah. the uh, Thunderdome cage match that was a bit of a mess. We've now done ninety, done ninety one, ninety two, ninety three. We haven't done ninety four with a cage match. Uh, oh, the Hogan Flair retirement. Nine, <coughs> retirement yeah, ninety-five. We haven't yet done, even though we've kind of touched upon it with the watch-alongs. We haven't done the infamous Yeti, uh, Yeti! Gl- glorified spit roast of Hulk Hogan in the middle of the ring. <laughs> um, ninety-six, we've done, haven't we? Yep, ninety-six, we've done. Ninety-seven, we've done. Ninety-eight. Uh, I don't think we've done ninety-nine. I don't think we've done two thousand. So there's a few left. But they are going like hot cakes, aren't they? God, please don't let us do 99 or 2000. We're going to uh, have to eventually, then. Sorry. No, no, make it stop. I'll retire. <laughs> okay, so, Ross, one last thing before we let you go. We always ask our guests coming on for the first time if there is a WCW theme tune from the archives that they would like to pick as a favourite tune of theirs. And I believe you have sent uh, you've sent one to Liam. So... Liam, uh, press play, and then we'll uh, we'll hear what it is and get Ross to tell us why he's chosen this one. Will do.
Ah, so this will be uh, Raven's um, yes. Come As You Are ripoff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, with with grunge and Raven's whole character, um, I actually thought it was a really fitting piece of music. I thought it was, you know, it's a great piece of music for him. Um, and obviously, at the time, Jimmy Hart was just ripping off every every sign. This was like Nirvana must have had several rips off, didn't they, by uh, by WCW? Well, there was a DDP um, one as well, wasn't there? Yeah, which was like a version of "Smells Like Teen Spirit." Um, yeah. So hearing all those, and what's what's really great is like there's some YouTube channels dedicated to uh, wrestling themes and where wrestling themes have been ripped off from, um, which which makes you realise the originality of wrestling themes. It doesn't actually exist. Most <laughs> wrestling themes, most wrestling themes have been just stolen from 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 popular songs. And uh, yeah, this one was just—it was—it was just so similar to "Come, uh, Come As You Are," uh, but no, it's a great one. I think it fit in perfectly. I think you know, it was—it was a great one to fit the Raven character in WCW. Yeah, when when you think about the the song he had in ECW, which was obviously a you know proper um, copyrighted music, which was um, "Come Out and Play" by The Offspring, mm. that was always a bit too upbeat for me. This this is yeah to me this song is more. In, in keeping with the Raven character and the, that walk down the aisle, that shuffling, shambling walk down the aisle he'd do. Yeah, definitely. I mean, Come Out, uh, Come Out and Play is an awesome song. It's an absolutely banging song. But uh, yeah, this this one is definitely, it just it just fits really nicely. I think Come yeah. Out and Play, that doesn't the actual lyrical meanings and the reasoning behind the song from The Offspring, it has a bit more of a deeper link to the raven tommy dreamer feud doesn't it yes yeah. and about the uh you know like childhood violence and things like that like violence amongst youths or something like that i'd have to actually look it up to be precise but i'm pretty i'm pretty sure that was the the main basis for picking that uh there's a there's a certain sinisterness and mayhem about the guitar riffs that made it work but yeah i agree with you dean nonetheless this this does work lovely for raven here you think he didn't really use a theme song early on because he was doing the whole lurking in the crowd invading brooding with the flock but especially when he started to be a bit more of a conventional entrance and, and you know there was that face turn where he was having the hardcore wars with hack and bam bam bigelow and i always remember spring stampede 99 one of my favorite all-time wcw pay-per-views which we'll hopefully cover with someone very very soon um you had uh raven and satin coming out with the lighting and all that to this i thought it was absolutely brilliant um yeah I've, I've i've long said about my soft spot for rip shamelessly ripped off music the thing what really worked especially with a lot of wcw uh examples of this was jimmy hart had a knack for yes he would take what was great about these famous songs these very successful songs but he still had a knack for making his rip off very wrestling theme friendly and funnily enough given that i'm speaking to two um fwa alumni here uh, i actually thought that the, the the good old days of that british federation the frontier wrestling alliance i feel like they had a good uh few cracks at that where there'd be a couple of entrance themes that had those the you know those inspirations but they'd still make it into a good catchy wrestling walkout theme oh that was ralph there was yeah. a tremendous guy from birmingham called ralph cardell i don't know what, what i don't know where he went or what he did he seemed to disappear after fwa and yeah he would um he would um create original um mostly instrumental theme tunes 
Thor people, which is why yeah, any of the uh, any of the FWA tunes that had um, that had any kind of vocal on always had a brummy accent to it because they're done by Ralph. But yeah, um, yeah he it, did the the old school for the for um for the the stable I had, and then he did some tremendous kind of like industrial rock sounding stuff for Sticks and Stone as well. And it was uh, Johnny us- Storms, wasn't it? Johnny Storm had uh, that brilliant remix of like One and Only, yeah. yeah. See, I think it's one thing to, to if, you, if you're going to rip off a, 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 a you know a well-known, famous, successful song, fair enough. But you've got to know where you're taking it. And I think guys like Ralph and Jimmy Hart had a good knack of of how to acclimatise what they were ripping into the wrestling world. And because of that, I've always had a soft spot for WCW rip-off music. So, I mean, I've, I've volunteered Elix Skipper's theme in the later years for this yeah. very segment and things like that. There's so many good ones. I'm, I'm a huge yeah. fan of it. It can be done. It can be done very well. And I always love listening to wrestling rip-off themes. Yeah, which, but I, you, I think you can't not then mention the early days of TNA, which was then where Dale Oliver just ripped off the rip-off yeah. versions, so like people like DDP and uh, and Scott Steiner and kind of all these ex WCW guys got like an even more diluted version, didn't they? He TNA. did some of his own ripping off as well. To be fair, yeah. there was a, there was a lot of Tool music, you know, songs by the band Tool, and uh, yeah. there was I I remember um, Vince Russo had a, a shockingly decent rip-off of System of a Down. Uh, they was say did some of his own so, uh, with mo- mostly songs and bands that became famous after those though no more. So he, he took that torch yeah. from Jimmy Hart and yeah. he carried it quite well. Yeah, the one I always loved was um, was when they uh, brought Hulk Hogan into WCW and gave him American Made, and basically it's the uh, it's the opening bars of real american but with one note removed basically and that's all the difference amazing it's really, fantastic really amazing facts i didn't realize until uh, uh, uh i was listening to a, a different podcast sorry i do uh, sorry i you know don't want to talk about your rivals obviously um, <laughs> um the, the uh jimmy hart's king of the ring promo the 1993 king of the ring when jimmy hart was managing hulk hogan he uses his promo uses the opening two lines of Amer- american made um, I'm trying to think of the lyrics. He, he literally in his oh, promo. He's got he's, the red, white, yeah, and blue running through his veins. Yeah, he literally says those as his promo lines. Um, really? And this, this was literally like you know, and this was '93, so this was what months before he actually went to WCW. Oh, I'm um, gonna have to look that yeah, one up. Yeah, go later. go and go up and look up the promo. He actually uses those. So he obviously just held on to those as lyrics, and was like, oh, I'm going to use those as lyrics later on. And uh, or he was or he was secretly writing Hogan's WCW theme at the time. Who knows? Yeah, Considering so. the class it wouldn't surprise me that Hogan and Hart had their exit strategy all lined out yeah. hidden behind a poster a la Shawshank Redemption <laughs> oh nice I'm going I'm to have to go and find that because that does sound tremendous right well Ross I'm going to let you go you've been you've been with us uh, we've, you've, you've given up a lot of your time we very much appreciate it it has been absolutely fantastic having you on the podcast thank you so much for taking the time to join us brilliant thank you for having me I mean I, I you know I'm a massive fan of WCW I'm gutted they're not around because that's who I would have tried to get signed with if they still were <laughs> <laughs> and uh, if people want to get hold of you on um, on social media how can they find you 
Uh, I, I am on and off Twitter uh, at RJ Singh is King uh, on Twitter. So, yeah, if people want to find me there, come follow me. It's it's not much wrestling at the moment, mainly pictures of my daughter <laughs> until, <laughs> until wrestling starts up <laughs> and I can put some wrestling content. I do actually, I do I do often tend to clip moves like, you know, old school moves like the DDT and stuff like that. I did, a I think, about a week I presented different DDTs on Twitter um, oh, okay. from Arne Anderson and Jake Roberts and, and people like that. So every now and again, I do like to throw out classic wrestling moves on my twitter as well nice and uh, if you want to uh, get a hold of us on the old twitter you can find us at because wcw or facebook.com forward slash because wcw um please do if you are uh, wherever you get your podcast from subscribe to us you will get fresh content directly to your device in that case um and do rate and review us um we always appreciate uh, good feedback from people thank you so much for taking the time and trouble to download this episode and uh, please do look over our uh, entire back catalogue at becausewcw.podbean.com or as I said wherever you get your podcast from so on behalf of Liam this is me the Twisted Genius saying thanks for listening and we'll see you ringside